HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Consider Bardwell Farm in Vermont, a producer of award-winning handmade cheese from goat and cow milk. For more information, visit considerbardwellfarm.com. Hi, this is Celia Kutcher, host of Animal Instinct, and you are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hello, this is Diane Stemple on Cutting the Curd on HeritageRadio.org. Today I'm pleased to welcome Michael Paternitti, author of The Telling Room, A Tale of Love, Betrayal, Revenge, and the World's Greatest Piece of Cheese. Welcome, Michael. Oh, hey. Thanks, Diane. Thanks for having me. You're very, very welcome. It's delightful to have you. You're my first... uh, I don't even know what to how to describe your book. It's so unique and unusual. <laughs> I, I appreciate that. <laughs> I, th- you know, being a cheese book uh, interviewer, I don't often get to read um, books like yours. <laughs> yeah, I feel. Well, I feel like in some ways, I, I was not someone who would have even uh, myself predicted that I would have written a book about a piece of cheese. I mean, I love cheese. Uh-huh. Not to be wrong, but. Um, yeah, once I, uh, once I got sucked into this story, I couldn't, uh, I put myself away just in the report. Uh-huh. The, just for our, our viewers or our listeners who have not, um, read your book, the book combines cheese, uh, Spanish history, slow food philosophy, a family travelogue, and, and your own personal path to the mystery of this cheese. Would you say that's an accurate description? Yeah, yeah, and the one, I think the one other part that, that gripped me from the start was um, the fact that there was a little murder plot behind all of it. Um, <laughs> that, that threw me that threw me in deeply. In fact, um, but yeah, to, 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 I, to go to the beginning of the story, I mean, I, this this whole thing started when uh, I was a grad student, really, in Ann Arbor, Michigan, mm-hmm. and. Um, so it was the cheese. The cheese yours Sorry. itself caught your attention. Yeah, the cheese itself did it. Belly in Ann Arbor, Michigan, mm-hmm. um, and Ari Ari um, uh, Weinzweig was uh, um, the the man who at Zingerman's would sort of go out and travel the world and bring back these amazing products. Mm-hmm. And 
he brought back this cheese called Paramo de Guzman. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a cheap milk cheese that was made uh, up in the high plains of Spain. And uh, it was really, it was really sort of um, what had once been sort of a house cheese, really. People, people made it. Everybody had a slightly different recipe. Um, and this one family had their own recipe, and they decided um, that they were going to start making this cheese again after after many years of not making it. Mm-hmm. And it caught Ari's attention. I think it. Caught, I think he had a piece of it in London at a, at a cheese fair. Uh huh. Just blown away by it. Um, so he brought it back to Zingerman's to sell to his clients. I was uh, I was looking for work. I had no money, and I went to the deli, and they had me proofreading Ari's newsletter, mm-hmm. where he would tell the story, these stories of all his adventures and sort of tracking down um, all these amazing foods from all over the world. And he'd written, I don't know, maybe four paragraphs of a little piece of cheese, and it sounded truly like the beginning of a fairy tale. Uh huh. Uh huh. And you love um, the taste, also. I'm sorry? You love the taste of the cheese also? Uh, the taste of the cheese. Yeah, I mean, he, so I had occasion cheese at that time. Um, it, was, it was a very strong cheese. I mean, a very strong cheese. It was um, this sort of cheese that you, you, know, you really can't oftentimes get to the third bite. Yeah, it's just that strong. But it was... Um, but it was also, you know, it's sort of this mix between, um, I guess, some consistency. It was sort of, it was sort of like a manchego like um, way about it. You know, it, mm-hmm. it, that would that would be um, not in taste, but just a sort of texture and density. Mm-hmm. Um, it was it was more on the manchego line, but um, but yeah, the way Ari Ari sort of unraveled the story uh, briefly in that, in that little entry was that there had been um, this family, the Molinas family, that had made this cheese uh, for, for, you know, centuries um, out in the countryside to mostly feed their field hands. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so the landowners who had the best food oftentimes had the best workers. And so it was really important that you had both great cheese, great wine, and the Molina family sort of excelled in the making of cheese and wine, and um, and at some point, all these all these farms became mechanized, and all the workers went to the to the cities to work in the factories, and they didn't have a reason anymore to make the cheese. So I think they stopped making the cheese somewhere, you know, in the early '60s. And Ambrosio, the son of uh, Ambrosio Senior, mm-hmm. uh, decided that he was going to try to make this cheese again. There was no recipe for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the matriarchs sort of knew by, you know, almost like a genetic um, bequeathment how to make this, how to make this cheese. Of recipes. And, yeah, and so his, so his mom helped him um, try, to, try to recover that recipe. And they worked at it for... A while. I mean, I think it was actually like a couple of years before they got it right. Mm-hmm. Now, what year did you taste the cheese at first, and by what time do you go to Spain looking for the family? Well, so I so I didn't taste the cheese. Um, this was 1991 when I was at at, at uh, Zingerman's Deli okay. in Harbor, 
And I was in Spain in the year 2000 to profile Ferran Adria, the uh-huh. chef, uh-huh. Um, at El Bulli. Okay. And I was, I, was on so I was there. I think I was there actually for, let's say I was there for 10, 10 days or so, and I had a Sunday off. And I, I had always carried this little clipping uh, from that newsletter ages ago that, struck me as sort of incredible, this man making this cheese and aging it in his family cave, sort of hand-milking the sheep himself. It was just this this strange tale of just one man against sort of the universe making this beautiful cheese. And when people tried this cheese, they said it was full of memories because people then sort of remembered their mother's kitchen. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so it moved people. You know, that, that, was, that was the interesting part of it for me, at least, that it moved people, and that it was also the most expensive cheese Ingermans had ever sold because Ambrosio said uh, in the newsletter that he um, put all of his quote unquote love into it. And I thought, you know, that's sort of preposterous to me on some level. Uh-huh. Um, but then also intriguing on another level. Um, you know, I, I just was like, I wonder what that is really about. You know, what is, what is this? story about what is this cheese really about what does it symbolize mm-hmm. for him um so so to get to your question i went and saw ambrosio for the first time in the year 2000 okay and he took me in august of 2000 into what was called a telling room his room, which is his family cave mm-hmm. um and in the cave complex there's a cave down underneath and then above there's a little room in that little room, uh, which is made of limestone and usually buried into the hills to the north of town, um, there might be a wood plank table, a fireplace, um, a bunch of buttons uh, that they cook the lama on. Um, it's a very, very earthen, rustic place where they go to eat uh-huh. and to tell their stories and to share their dreams. Um, do they and call it the telling history. room? Do they call it the telling room? They did. Okay. Wait, I'm losing you. I'm sorry. Can you hear me now? Yes, I can. Okay. Um, yeah, that was one of the things that they called it. They had several names for it, but the telling room um, was one of one of the, the. They would say, "Let's go, let's go up to the telling room," mm-hmm. and usually, it was in the telling room where. Um, people really did tell their most important stories. So there was this important aspect of storytelling to the consumption of food, um, and all of it felt very ancient mm-hmm. and ritualistic. Uh, to me, the, that very first time, I was just really blown away. Um, and, and Ambrosio himself is just a master storyteller. Uh-huh. Um, so I so was very much under his spell. In 2000, they're not making the cheese anymore, correct? Well, yeah, and I didn't... Um, Did I you didn't know, know that, that when you were setting out on your on your journey? No, I didn't. Well, I didn't know that he wasn't making it. Yeah, I knew, I, I, I knew that, um, that he had been making it. I knew that he was going to... He, he had invited me to the village, but I didn't know exactly what we were going to find there. Uh-huh. Um, and, of course, I was going because I hadn't tried it all those years earlier. It was it really truly had been too expensive for me to afford. Um, and so I thought this would be amazing to go to this little tiny village of 80 people, mm-hmm. um, this sort of dying village. 
a half a mile above sea level in this harsh landscape, this harsh Castilian landscape of vineyards and um, you know, sunflower fields. And when I got there, we, my friend Carlos and I, Carlos was supposed to translate for me, um, we went looking for Ambrosio and uh, were pointed to his cave and knocked on the door. And so he came out of the telling room and, and ushered us in. And we we were there probably for about eight hours and during which he told this story about this cheese we'd come to try um, and the fact that he didn't have any of this cheese anymore. Mm-hmm. And what he told us was that the cheese had become uh, world famous and... Of course, all of this does, in the end, check out. It's all true. But um, but the cheese, when he first made it, was something he gave to people in the village, and they passed it to people in the next village over. Um, and people thought it was so good, they just kept passing it along. Until one day, a cheesemonger came up from Madrid, and he tried this cheese, and then he brought it to Madrid to sell. And it was said that the king and queen of Spain tried this cheese, and... Um, and thought it was amazing, and then started to give it as a gift um, to, and was given as a gift to the royal family of England. Oh, so it was getting was, around. Yeah, it got around. <laughs> it, it did, and was given as a gift to like Ronald Reagan um, and Fidel Castro. Tried to buy mm-hmm. all of Ambrosia's cheese, so it was really there was something <laughs> about it. It also that, came in a tin, which made it even easier to give, you know, to people far away. Exactly. It was so idiosyncratic right down to the packaging mm-hmm. um, that I think people just kind of fell in love with this, this sort of uh, completely eccentric mm-hmm. uh, product. And, and then besides the sort of mythology of it, that if you were to eat this cheese, you were going to have have these memories and, and uh, have this taste experience that was going to overwhelm you on some level. Mm-hmm. So, so Ambrosio had been... Uh, got to a point where he, as the maker, and he sort of very much sees himself as this sort of bohemian storytelling uh, Falstaff of the fields. Mm-hmm. Um, he all he wanted to do was was make this cheese. He, he wasn't a great businessman, but he, as he, as the cheese was more and more um, in demand, he called in his best friend, uh, a guy named Julian who was a lawyer and was a great businessman. And so Julian started helping to advise him mm-hmm. on, on how to proceed. And Ambrosio wanted to move um, his whole operation. At the time, it was just the state. He was making the cheese in a stable in the village uh, across from the house where he'd been born. And he wanted to move across the fields to this old factory, this old uh, building that was literally from like the 16th century I mean, they were going to retrofit it, and um, and they did, and they did this. Uh, somewhere along the line, though, as Ambrosio had it, Julian would put these contracts in front of him, and because Ambrosio trusted him like a brother, he would sign them and then go back to making the cheese. Uh, and Ambrosio then claimed that at some point at the height of the cheese, cheese's popularity, um, he had put his signature on a, on a contract that, that basically uh, signed away his rights to this cheese, that he'd been bamboozled mm-hmm. by his by best friend. Julian. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Um, and then once he realized this, he started to to plot the murder of Julian. <laughs> okay, so, well, it's time so that's for... that's where it takes its twist. Okay, well, that's, so that's, we'll get to the murder plot after the break. It's time for us to take a short break on Cutting the Curd. I'll be right back. Thank you, Michael Paternity. Today's program has been brought to you by Consider Bardwell Farm. Spanning the rolling hills of Vermont's Champlain Valley and easternmost Washington County, New York, 300-acre Consider Bardwell Farm was the first cheese-making co-op in Vermont founded in 1864 by Consider Stebbins Bardwell himself. Rotational grazing on pesticide-free and fertilizer-free pastures produces the sweetest milk and the tastiest cheese. All of their cheeses are aged on the farm in their extensive system of caves. Consider Bardwell Farm is also a big supporter of Heritage Foods USA's No Goat Left Behind program. No Goat Left Behind is a serious effort launched in 2011 by Heritage Foods USA designed to introduce goat meat to American diners and provide a sustainable end market for dairy animals. For more information, please visit www.considerbardwellfarm.com. Hi, it's Diane Stemple, Cutting the Curd. We're with Michael Paternetti, uh talking about the book, The Telling Room. Michael, through um, the book's about you, too. Yes. Uh, through, yeah. through the whole book, I'm amazed by your supportive wife. <laughs> <laughs> Is it yeah. that you are both, um, as journalists, always traveling for work, so it's not unusual how supportive she is? Um, well, maybe maybe she gets, maybe she gets uh, what it is that I'm trying to do because she's trying to do it um, also. But no, she's she's incredible, and she um, was completely willing to kind of dive into this adventure. Cause right. Because what moved. what I want to tell the listeners is, just when I'm thinking your wife must be ready to kill you, you come up with this plan to go live there for a while. With a one, exactly. with a one and a three-year-old, correct? Yes. <laughs> what was that like? Up <laughs> oh, there, you go again. Come back. Can you hear me now? Yes, I can. I mean, it was it was uh, probably you know not um, not the kind of place where where you go if you're looking for. Her playgrounds and all sorts of stuff for one- and three-year-olds, because there was really nothing there. There's no Starbucks. There's, there's nothing. <laughs> is there even um, a store? I'm sorry? Is there a store? Uh, there, no, not in the village. Uh, there was a little... There was um, a bakery. There was, there was a couple that made bread. Okay. Um, sometimes you could go in and, and buy your bread, but otherwise uh, there was a bar which was the center of, of social life. So um, you get your beer and your wine and, and your hard liquor. But after that, you have to drive for a grocery. 
most uh, three minutes away. Uh, you're really, you're really out there. You're really shipwrecked. Uh, right in the, the middle of nowhere in Spain. In Spain, yeah. I mean, it's, it's. I think it's. I've had this feeling before. So I've been driving through some village, and you think. Wait, we're losing you again. Can you get in a better situation? Yeah. Can you hear me? Try again. Okay. Let me, can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I think um, no, I think sometimes when you're traveling, you'll pass through maybe a very lonely place, and you will, you know, maybe pass through a village and just wonder what it would be like to live there. And this really was sort of that experiment. Um, slowing everything way, way down, mm-hmm. um, and living and living kind of the old way, really the old Castilian way, uh-huh. um, and spending time in the fields, going to uh, the telling room, and spending nights where people just told old stories, uh, you know, cooked food the old way, all of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was, you know, I think I think my wife, to answer your question. Was um, really also excited and and ensorcelled by this idea of seeing what it might be like there, uh-huh. and see. And really, we were going sort of on this adventure backwards in time, and I think that was I think that was intriguing to her. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think she wished that I would have been more of a reporter and less of a disciple of Ambrosios, because a lot of time a lot of time passed. Yes, we were sort of drinking a lot of wine and talking about eating <laughs> a lot, but not really getting anywhere with it. Yeah. At so one we, point, what do you say? A thousand sips or a thousand words, and then and then I can have some more sips. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, was really, um, it was really. It was really. I was motivated, right? Only because it was more, you know, more time uh, mm-hmm. in the telling room, and that mm-hmm. was. That was fantastic. It was great to live that way for a while. It's not a great way to try to write a book in the end. Apparently. <laughs> has any apparently, other story has any other story captured you the way uh, Ambrosio's story has? Oh, I think, you know, in my, in my life as a journalist, um, I've been in places that have been more sort of intense and, and situations that have been, um, you know, on occasion traumatic and war zones or... Um, covering natural disasters. So there was really something about this that, I, I mean, maybe it just hit me um, because my other work seemed so intense and the, the pace of life in this place um, and some of the deeper truths that emerged uh, felt equal to and as important as uh, the other work I was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and And yet calamity wasn't right in front of your... Ah, it was a deeper, kind of slower unfolding. Right. Um, the way sort of real life is and, and, and its way. And, and then the, all of this was punctuated by eating beautiful food, you know, right. eating the best possible cheese um, that, that one person thought he could make. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, it took me, it took, he had lost the cheese, but he had two, and eventually just one tin that left in his cave. Um, and as an offering to me for the effort that he saw me making to understand his way of life, um, he did. He did it. It was quite sure that that cheese with me. Mm-hmm. 
In the book, He's Larger Than Life, Ambrosio, how many yeah. years go by till you meet the lawyer and then Julian? Oh, God, yeah, probably six, six years or like go by. So you were able to kind of keep the fantasy of Ambrosio until you meet the lawyer. Yes, it was it was really important for me to do that. I mean, at the beginning, I really thought that um, I was in the middle of a murder plot. You uh-huh. know, I really thought about uh-huh. going whether I should go to the police, or I was completely swept up in it. Um, and stop the murder? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I was, Well, you didn't want Ambrosio to go to jail. Well, I know, but at the very beginning, I remember saying to Carlos, after we'd been told this story, and he told us how he was going to murder Julian. It was very horrific. And I remember saying to Carlos, that... Wait, I lost you. What what was Carlos's reaction? Uh, Well, I asked Carlos, does that that make us an accomplice here? He does it. You know, tonight, what happens, like, we knew about this murder plot. Um, but what I, you know, what I realized and going back again and again is that everybody knew that Ambrosio, this plan to murder Julian, <laughs> and it hadn't happened but yet. It, it hadn't. It didn't happen. It, it kept not happening. And it did. Mm-hmm. And another story, you know. So for me, then it became intriguing. Like every time he told the story, he was killing Julian in his mind. Right, and he killed him. You know, he killed him a thousand times over. Right. I mean, and then I started thinking about. So, what is really happening here? What is, what is the nature of this kind of storytelling? Mm-hmm. To me, uh, what is most interesting is how difficult it seems to have been for you to integrate the slowly uncovered truth about the failure of the cheese company. Yeah. Well, I think I do think had I been out on a magazine assignment and I had and I had five days to tell this story. I would have done Ambrosio and then, you know, the next day I would have been in Julian's office. Right. right. I didn't I didn't go there to write it as a book. I didn't go there to write it as an article. I went there to just try some cheese because I love cheese and I also this was this was mythical to me. Mm-hmm. Um and inside of this piece of cheese you had this, you know, artistry and this story and, and this history and so all of it was in this beauty all of it was in there mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um in this very old way of living uh, so when you were tasting this cheese you were tasting the land right i'm um, in the very particular terroir of the place and mm-hmm. so you know it was it was much bigger than that right from the start for me i went i went in um doing this for myself not not sort of taking a skeptical view of it mm-hmm. as a as one might as a journalist but I just went in open-minded and open-hearted, and I got sucked in. Mm -hmm. I had the thought initially, um, I had thought the book was fiction because it was mislabeled on on one of the sites when I was investigating. Did you Uh, consider changing it to fiction so you could have kept Ambrosio mythical? Yeah, well, I think at one point I I was wondering... I've been waiting for something to happen, mm-hmm. and um, and I just thought this would be so much easier if it was a novel at this point. Mm-hmm. And it feels like it. It felt like it from the start. It was sort of it had this magical realist quality anyway. But what I what I love um, is this form, this this interesting form that sort of is uh, called literary nonfiction or long form. I love 
working in that space between sort of fiction and nonfiction where mm-hmm. you're employing narrative device and and um and creating a voice for your story and stylizing that story in a way mm-hmm. that it can be read as right. novelistic. Right, right. Well his story feels very novelistic and then your story is sort of in between it. Yeah, exactly. Mine mine is more sort of straight straighter memoir. Mm-hmm. Um and I think one of the things in the book is that Ambrosio has this way of telling a story that's very Castilian, with full of footnotes and all sorts of, um, you know, uh, marginalia. So you don't ever quite get to the story. You know, years can pass before you hear the actual story. Or right. someone will tell the story and then someone will immediately contradict it. So there's this this interesting tension in the telling of stories. And often the story that they're telling inside of the story or the story that they're um, sort of pausing to tell you as they're telling the main story is really telling you everything about the story they're trying to tell you. So it became very tricky, and it became this sort of, uh, it just the story full of trap doors. And I wanted to, I wanted to include that until the point at which I took control of the story again. Mm-hmm. And so the last third of the book then you know, there are less footnotes. And right, I just, you're sort of, swept back up into the story in that part. Now, the exactly. footnotes, I do have a few questions. Did your editors complain about the footnotes? There are lots of footnotes. Yeah, no, I, you know, it's funny. I, in, in fact, if anything, uh, my editor, he worked, uh, really encouraged it because he just felt like, I know this is going to be difficult for some people, but, like, I know what you're trying to do here, you know, and uh-huh. why don't we... Why don't we, if we're going to do that, let's wait with, you know, why, why kind of, um, do just a little, like, why don't you reflect it as accurately as you, like, the way those interruptions mm-hmm. occur and frustrating. In some ways, it is until you get swept into this other, this other story within a story, which is, is also magical and mystical and completely compelling. Mm-hmm. Are you um, generally a footnote user? Did your other book no, have oh footnotes? God. No, not <laughs> I, I don't have footnotes. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not, you know, um, partial to them. Also, <laughs> are they, are they footnotes mostly factual? If you had to, I mean, how do you decide when to put something in a footnote? Uh, I've done a lot of we have a lot of conversation about that, and able to read people to read the book without footnotes. Mm-hmm. So if the story held together above the footnotes, that that was fine with me. And then if you wanted to go down into the cave underneath <laughs> and you wanted to to really get down in there, um, and the timeless place closer to the center of the earth than it was, if right? You were right. Fine. Right. It'd and be that, interesting that, to go through and just was, read the footnotes. Yeah, I think it, yeah, and down there's all that uh, that I think deepens the story, but not, but but if you're, if you can still, I hope be very entertaining about the book. How long did it take you to decide the organization of the book? Well, I wrote, I did write that book, beginning of that, um, probably wrote it and rewrote it four or five times up to like. Page one hundred and fifty or one hundred and sixty, uh-huh. and um, and then I would I would always stop at the end of the summer right. when we um, left Guzman, mm-hmm. uh, 
it just I just didn't want to leave that place. I didn't really want to ask the questions that I need to ask. What really happened? Julian and what really happened. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. uh, and then when I finally worked up the gumption to that, started to really get to the of it. Um, you know, that that came pretty quickly, and just as it is reflected in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, has, will Ambrosia read the book? Yeah, I, I, you know, I was in London doing a book, some some um, book stuff, and it came up for us. We did, we did, um, we did a big event together, which was wonderful. Oh, and, yeah. And he, uh, he, he's he's very good friends with uh, um, uh, Monica Linton, who who runs the, this um, uh, sort of series of Spanish tapas. Uh, restaurants in mm-hmm. London. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she she was also we did the event at one of her places, and um, but you know you know he's not I, I don't know that he's ever going to finish a, a book period. <laughs> he's just too distracted to do right, that, right. and his whole life is about oral storytelling. Right. But um, but I do think that uh, he understands that in the end I had to sort of tell my own truth, and he was. He's been really, um, you know, really supportive of that from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he, at some point, you know, and as I was struggling to write this thing, he he said, you know, I do understand that you have a job to do. I know, I know you're going to have to ask certain questions and, and your research, and you know, just tell the truth as best you can. Mm-hmm. Um, and that sounded good at the time. This is a man who said he was going to murder his best friend. So I sort of had this thing in the back of my mind, like, if I screw this up, or, you know, dot, 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 um, <laughs> he, may, he may have, have uh, the next plot for me. So, so far, so far, it's okay. So far, it looks good. Well, thank yeah. you very much for coming on, on our show, Cutting the Curd. You have a lot of, um, you know, cheese uh, listeners who will be, you know, reading your book or already have read your book. I didn't want to give too much away during the interview. Yeah, well, and um, thank you, Diana. You're very welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thanks to Jack Inslee, engineer for today's show. I'll be back with another cheese book next month. And this is Diane Stemple on Cutting the Curd. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.